Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 23 in our video series going through the Gospel of Matthew. And I know that it's been a long time coming, but we're slowly but surely making our way towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're going to be covering the first half of Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 12. And we're going to be talking about judgment, justice, and true righteousness. And really the things that we're going to cover today are going to bring an end to a huge section, really the main body of the stuff that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've got some really, really good stuff ahead of us today, and I hope that you're ready for it because I'm excited to talk about it with y'all. First off, like always, we got to do a little bit of recap because context is key for interpreting these things correctly. Because especially as we get to the back half of the Sermon on the Mount, what I've noticed a lot of people do is they start separating everything Jesus is saying and they start divorcing it from what he said before to where they start almost treating it like these are a bunch of separate teachings that are just little vignettes that give us an insight to what Jesus is saying. But really, I believe that what Jesus is saying in the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, directly ties to what he was saying in chapters 5 and 6. And so the context is really key for helping us understand this correctly. And so let's recap that really quickly. The main thing that Jesus has been doing in the entire Sermon on the Mount is he has been comparing and contrasting two types of people. On one hand, you have the hypocrite, and on the other hand, you have the kingdom citizen, the person who belongs to Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven right? Another way you could look at this is that on one hand, you have the wicked person, and on the other hand, you have the righteous person. Both people might appear righteous, or one person might just be outright wicked, but what Jesus is arguing is that there is a distinction to be made in forms of righteousness. There is a way where you could appear righteous, but still be wicked. That is the way of the hypocrite, like Jesus has been saying. Another way you could look at this is that there are two paths you could follow. There is the path towards folly and the path towards wisdom. Another way to look at it is that there is the path of the world and the path of the Lord. A final way you could look at this is that you have one person who is living according to the fear of man and another person who is living according to the fear of God, right? This is basically the huge contrast that Jesus has been making throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. There's two types of people and you want to make sure that you are on the right side of the story, right? You don't want to be the hypocrite. You don't want to be the person following the path of the world. You don't want to be the wicked person. You don't want to be the person engaging in performative righteousness. You want to be the person who is fearing God, who is living righteously, not because of what you attain from God, but who is living righteously because of who God is and what he demands. And really, righteousness itself has been the driving theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has basically been promoting what we've been calling a redemptive form of righteousness, a righteousness that isn't rooted in outward performance and isn't rooted in the fear of man, but ultimately is rooted in the fear of God and trust in God. Does that mean that ultimately it doesn't result in outward performance? Well, no, absolutely. This righteousness should result in outward performance, but it isn't simply performative in nature. It isn't concerned with who sees what you're doing because it ultimately trusts that God sees. The righteousness that Jesus is advocating for here in the Sermon on the Mount is all about a righteousness before the eyes of God, not necessarily in the eyes of God. Of man. It is a righteousness that flows from trust in God. Trust that God knows best. Trust that God will provide. Trust that God is a God who sees and pays attention to what you're doing, even if man looks down upon you. In many ways, what Jesus is doing here, and I think this is fitting given what Jesus came to do, is he's offering a reversal to the Garden of Eden, right? Because if you go way back to the Garden of Eden story in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, 
Basically, the crux of that story, the thing that resulted in man's fall from God, is that man decided that he wanted the ability to decide between good and evil. What he wanted to do is he wanted to rely upon himself, right? Eve looked at the fruit and she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. She wanted what it had to offer her because it offered her this ability to choose between what is good and bad and to call by her own standard something good and something else bad. Jesus is offering a reversal of that, and he's actually instructing his followers to do the exact opposite. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing his followers to willfully submit that same decision back to God, right? Because God himself is the only one who truly can decide between good and evil. And so what Jesus is telling his followers to do is to ultimately engage in a righteousness that entrusts things back to God and that isn't ultimately rooted in pride or some sort of self-reliance, right? That's ultimately what Jesus is advocating for in this entire sermon. And the way that he structured the whole thing is that he began with the Beatitudes, right? He identified the people who would be blessed and these are the people who are the kingdom citizens, right? These are the people who choose to align themselves with Jesus' teachings, and then really, for the greater portion of this whole sermon, starting in chapter 5, verse 17, and all the way to the passage we're covering today, basically what Jesus has been doing is he has been giving his own authoritative interpretation of the law and the prophets, right? He has just been walking through the law and giving the appropriate and correct interpretation of what God was trying to communicate through the law that he gave to Israel back in the Old Testament. Jesus is standing on this mountain and with the authority of a king and with the authority of a prophet and with the authority of God himself, he is declaring the proper interpretation of the law and prophets. And that's going to be something that he concludes in the section we're covering today. And then what he's going to do going into the very end of the Sermon on the Mount is he's going to conclude the thing with a series of curses and consequences placed upon the people who do not follow his words, right? So if you wanted to view it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is in many ways a big sandwich, right? On one hand, the bread on one end is blessings to fall upon the people who do follow Jesus' words. And then on the other hand, you have consequences and curses falling upon the people who don't follow Jesus' words. And in the middle, you have Jesus' words, his commandments, his instructions on true righteousness, Right here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as we're approaching there, at the very beginning of chapter 7, we're going to see all of these different themes come to a head as Jesus really begins tying all these little pieces together to talk about the things he wants to communicate right here, starting in verse 1. And the immediate context, right, like basically as Jesus has been interpreting the law, what he did starting in chapter 5 is he basically explained uh, explained that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And the way he's going to go about fulfilling it in the Sermon on the Mount is by explaining it correctly and explaining what the true purpose of the law is. And then he goes on and he begins to list several examples of certain commandments given in the law. And he explains the heart of the matter, right? God isn't simply concerned with adultery. He is concerned with adultery, but he's actually concerned with a deeper issue. He's concerned with the heart issue of lust, right? So Jesus goes through examples of that to demonstrate what true righteousness is according to the law. And then he goes in chapter six to contrast true righteousness with pharisaical or hypocritical righteousness, right? So there's several people who are out there who look righteousness from an outward perspective, but they're not actually righteous, right? They're actually wicked because they are simply living out their wickedness with a righteous veneer, right? They have a facade of righteousness that is really masking the wickedness that lays in their hearts, right? They are living according to the fear of man. 
Jesus continues on this train of thought and explains how kingdom citizens need to escape that mentality. They cannot be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Instead, what they have to do is rather than valuing the things of this earth, they have to learn to value the things of heaven, right? They have to live by faith. They have to live righteously, not because they're trying to appease man, but because they're trying to appease their father who sees in secret right? And so they can't serve two masters. They can't serve both God and the world. They have to choose between the two. And that's ultimately what Jesus has been communicating all the way until the end of chapter six. And now right here in chapter seven, there's going to be a slight shift in subject. But if you understand what he's been saying, the shift shouldn't be that groundbreaking. Because since a big aspect of this whole sermon is hypocrisy, what and righteousness, right? It's hypocrisy and righteousness. The big tendency for every single person as they're hearing this is to point fingers at other people and accuse them of failing to apply the principle, uh, failing to apply the principles that Jesus is saying here, right? We love to think of everybody else as scribes and Pharisees, and we don't like thinking of ourselves as scribes and Pharisees. And so, what Jesus is going to do, starting right here in verse one, is he's going to say, basically, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Don't start wagging your fingers at other people if you haven't looked at yourself and honestly examined yourself first. And so this is what he says, starting in verse one. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So first off, what Jesus is doing here is funny, right? He's making a joke, right? He's using this humorous example to just make a point that's so clear that a little kid will laugh at it because of how silly it is, right? It doesn't make sense to call out somebody else for having a tiny little speck of wood in their eye when you literally have a block of wood covering both of your eyes, right? This person, apparently their speck was so small they couldn't even notice it. You're blinded by the log in front of your own eye, right? Jesus is pointing out that this is hypocritical. And the reason he's pointing this out is because the entire sermon so far has been calling out other people on being hypocritical. And Jesus has been telling his own followers to make sure that they're not acting in such a way. And the easy thing for us to do is to point fingers at other people and call them hypocrites and excuse ourselves from being guilty of the very thing Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 you're a hypocrite if you're not taking the time to examine yourself first. If you're going to accuse other people of needing to handle their lust, you better check yourself first. If you're going to accuse other people of performing performative righteousness, you better check yourself and make sure that you are not yourself guilty of performative righteousness. Uh, in many ways, he's doing something very similar to what Paul's going to do uh, in the book of Romans, right? In the book of Romans, Paul spends the whole first chapter basically just explaining how every single person is underneath the rightful condemnation of God because of all the sinful things that we've done. And he's going to talk about how God handed people over to their sinful desires to do unnatural things because of how sinful they were. And whenever the Christian church, um, the, like the Roman church, received this letter, you can imagine them nodding their heads and saying, yeah, those pagans are terrible, horrible people. I can't believe they do all that. And then you get to Romans chapter 2, and Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse, O man who judges. <laughs> and basically, he's just like, 
you know, he just like drops the mic and you could have heard a pin drop whenever people read this because basically um, Jesus and Paul both, they're playing the Uno reverse card where they're both make, making this amazing case for the righteousness of God that we're all called to follow. And it's so easy for us to think that we are on the right side of the story. But then both Jesus and Paul play that Uno reverse card and say, you're actually the bad guy of the story. And if you think you're the good guy, then you need to get the plank out of your own eye before you start calling other people out. And so what Jesus is doing here does directly tie in to the preceding things. A lot of times people treat chapter seven, verse one as a separate thing, but it's not a separate thing. It directly ties in to hypocrisy, which has been a huge subject of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We don't want others to act hypocritical. And if we want to be able to get on to others about their hypocrisy, then we need to take our own hypocrisy and get that in check first. It's a universal temptation amongst all people to judge other people more strictly than ourselves, right? This is just what we do. And Jesus tells us not to do that. In fact, notice what Jesus says here, right? He actually says, verse two, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, right? He says that the way that we judge other people is going to be the same measure that we ourselves are judged. And he's not simply talking about by other people. I mean, that's certainly possible, right? If you're really harsh against other people, you can imagine they're gonna be harsh against you. But most likely, I would actually argue that in the world, uh, people will judge you more harshly depending on how harsh you judge, right? If you're a very gracious person, people will probably be, um, people will probably be a bit more gracious towards you. If you're a very harsh person who's always calling people out, well, then you can expect that people are probably going to double down on you. So I would actually say that since the world is a wicked place, uh, it won't actually be the same measure. They will actually hold you to an even greater standard than the measure that you judge. Who Jesus is ultimately talking about here is God himself, right? God himself is going to see how you're judging other people. And the same measure that you pour out on other people, Jesus is saying, God will pour out on you. If that is not a motive for being gracious, I don't know what is, right? Because I mean, this, is, this is crazy stuff, right? You have to just reflect on the implications of this right here, right? Really, the entire Sermon on the Mount is filled with radical, radical teachings. And right here in verse 2, this is one of those radical teachings. For the same measure you judge others, God's going to judge you. The same standard, right? He's going to look at how gracious you've been to other people. And then, if you've been gracious, well, then he'll be gracious to you. But... If you haven't been gracious to other people, well, then he's probably not going to be gracious to you either. And this is very similar to what he said back in chapter six, right? It's consistent with the whole teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, whenever Jesus talks about um, in, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then immediately after that prayer, the only thing that Jesus interprets for us is he explains, for the same measure that you forgive others, the Lord, your Father in heaven will forgive you, right? It's the same thing right? It's all about forgiveness. It's all about graciousness. It's all about judgment. And Jesus is not saying that we're not allowed to judge, right? People often misinterpret that. He's not saying that you're not allowed to judge ever. He's saying, be careful how you judge, because how you judge is going to determine how God judges you. Peter Lightheart, who I've been quoting a whole lot throughout this whole series, uh, he actually has to say this about this passage right here, and I think he puts it very well. As in chapter six, Jesus means what he says. He is not qualifying by saying, oh, well, you know what your ultimate standing with God has nothing to do with your actions. It's all about imputed righteousness. He says that we will be judged as we judge, end quote. The main thing that Lightheart's trying to highlight here 
is that a lot of the times what we are tempted to do is we're tempted to water down Jesus' sayings because of our broader theology, right? Well, ultimately, we know that I'm not going to be judged in the eyes of God um, because of how I judge others, because I know that I have an imputed form of righteousness that comes from Jesus' death on the cross. Okay, yes, I agree. Righteousness is imputed to us by Jesus on the cross. However, you can't just get rid of Jesus' teachings here, right? You can't just pick and choose certain Bible verses to make them say things that they don't actually say. You have to realize that the imputed righteousness that we receive from Jesus presupposes that we are people who have placed our faith in him. And according to Jesus, people who place their faith in him will be people who are changed, right? The Bible knows nothing of a Christian whose life is not radically transformed by their faith in Christ. It is not the life transformation that saves you, but the faith that does save you is a faith that results in life transformation, right? And so a person who has received that imputed righteousness will hold the standard, right? They might not hold it perfectly, but don't worry. God is gracious. And that's why we need to be gracious with others. Because if we're not gracious with others, then God will be less gracious with us. And therefore, probably not a good chance of us receiving that imputed righteousness, right? And so once again, I'm not advocating for salvation by works right here. I'm just trying to remind us that whenever the Bible talks about salvation by grace through faith, works are not like a separate thing way separated, right? They're two sides of the same coin, right? Faith is the thing that saves you, but the faith that saves you is a faith that works. And therefore, there is this life transformation. And so we can't just water down Jesus' teachings here and say, well, Paul tells us that salvation comes by grace through faith, and therefore I know that Jesus can't be taken seriously here. No, what you have to do is you have to learn to reconcile both of those things. We're saved by grace through faith, but at the same time, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And if you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. That is a serious commandment that comes from Jesus and from Paul. They're both in agreement. We just have to learn to reconcile them together. And so ultimately, we just have to realize that what Jesus is saying here, um, it, it's a high calling. But not only is it a high calling, it's a very beautiful calling, right? He's not saying this just to be rude, and he's not saying this to be a jerk, and he's not saying, oh, I just want to give God an excuse to not forgive you because you didn't forgive others. The reason why Jesus is saying this is because this is what redemptive righteousness looks like, right? This is actually the key to healthier relationships. I would actually just encourage you in your own personal life, ask yourself, who do I judge more strictly? Do I judge others more strictly or do I judge myself more strictly? Right? If you're talking with your spouse, are you constantly taking note of little things that they do wrong and just like keeping mental note of those in your head while never even accounting for the stuff that you do wrong? Or are you being gracious towards them knowing that they have been gracious towards you because you're also not perfect? Right? Who are you judging more and who are you being more gracious with? Naturally, we are temp uh, naturally we are more tempted to be harsh on other people and more gracious with ourselves. And I'm not simply talking about being a perfectionist or OCD where you're just like really trying to be absolutely perfect. That would actually be sinful from Jesus' perspective as well because ultimately you're still trying to prove yourself before God. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about if you're just being honest with yourself and you are genuinely examining your relationships, who are you harsher on? Others or yourself? Because usually what we'll do is we will allow ourselves to make a lot of mistakes and then we'll be confused whenever people aren't gracious towards us right? But then whenever other people make mistakes far less than what we've done, we won't be gracious towards them. And we'll allow bitterness to build up inside of us. And we'll allow hatred to build up inside of us. Or we'll just keep this record of wrongs that just slowly adds on to it. And we'll start remembering one thing after another that they did wrong. 
Whereas we don't just keep track of all the things that we've done wrong, right? And so what Jesus is advocating here is a beautiful thing because this is something that will ultimately produce harmony in relationships. Because once again, he's not telling you not to judge. He's simply saying, be careful how you judge, right? You better not be caught pointing out a speck in somebody else's eye if you've got a log blogging your whole eyes. <laughs> if you can't even see, how can you see clear enough to point out the speck in your brother's eye? You hypocrite, right? You're pointing out something that you can't even see because you're so blinded by your own failures. Jesus is saying that you have to correct yourself first in order to actually engage in this righteousness. That's ultimately what he's communicating. He's not telling us to ignore our brother or sister's faults. He's not telling us to ignore our friend's faults. He's not telling us to ignore our spouse's faults. Rather, what he's telling us to do is to act redemptively, right? We have to stop and we have to realize that self-correction is the first step in redemptive righteousness, right? We want to be there for our friend and we want to point out the speck in their eye. That's an important thing for us to do. And if they're our friend, they should understand that they don't want that speck in their eye and therefore they should want us to point it out, right? It's kind of like whenever you have something stuck in your teeth, you want your friend to point that out so that you don't go everywhere else with that stuff stuck in your teeth, right? That's what we should want. We should want the speck taken out of our eye, but we don't want the speck taken out of our eye by a person who has a log covering their own because that person won't actually be able to help you. All they'll be able to do is make stuff up based off their own blind perception of reality, right? And so what Jesus is saying is that if you actually want to help out your friend, and if you actually want to engage in redemptive righteousness that is not hypocritical, you have to correct yourself first. You have to check yourself before you wreck yourself. You have to examine yourself, examine your heart, figure out where you're lacking, and try to address those issues. And then, once you've laid that all on the table, and once you know where you stand, then you can address your brother and say, hey, I noticed this little speck in your eye. Because you've removed the log from your own. Does this mean we're going to be perfect? No. Does it mean that you have to be morally perfect in order to correct somebody? No, absolutely not. The whole point is don't be a hypocritical judge. That is what Jesus is communicating here. He's not saying not to judge. In fact, as he's going to point out in the literal next verse, you have to use judgment, right? But even in these verses right here, judgment is necessary, right? You have to judge that you have a log covering your eyes, right? Judgment is necessary to life and judgment is necessary, especially to the Christian life. What he's pointing out is that we shouldn't be hypocritical judges. And if we are to err on one side, we should err on the side of graciousness, right? Because that's what God does, right? Whenever you have Abraham talking with God in Genesis chapter 18 about the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, Sodom and Gomorrah was a terrible place and it deserved to be destroyed. But you know what Abraham did? as the keeper of the way of Yahweh, the one who preserved righteousness and justice, as we learn in that chapter, Abraham stands before God and he pleads with God. And he says, God, what if there's 50 righteous people? Okay, what if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Right? Abraham pleads with God, knowing that God wants to be gracious. Yes, God is just and yes, God is righteous, but ultimately God is a God of hesed who loves showing loving kindness to people, right? And he loves being gracious towards people. Abraham knew this, and we should know this too. And therefore, we shouldn't be hypocritical judges who are always pointing out other people's faults. But if we do point out people's faults, it should be because we are coming from it out of brotherly love and are genuinely trying to help them, having already checked ourselves first. That's what Jesus is advocating here. Which then leads us into verse 6. 
Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under the feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What he's advocating for here is something that kind of buffers the verses that preceded it, right? Because Jesus seems to anticipate the fact that after he preached this sermon, people are going to take his words out of context. Think about how many people you have heard read chapter 7, verse 1 out of context and just quote it at you, right? Don't judge lest you be judged, right? People will quote this all the time out of context and they'll misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And all you have to do is keep reading to understand that Jesus is not saying that you can't judge in any way whatsoever. Instead, he actually is instructing his disciples to judge. But what he's calling them to do is not to just be jerks about it and to just be mean, hypocritical judges. He's actually encouraging them to discern things rightly, right? Don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear to pieces, right? Ultimately, what he's saying is know your audience and treat your audience according to how it needs to be treated, right? He's saying don't just come up with these black and white rules that you're going to treat everybody with. Instead, recognize that there's different types of people in the world, right? Some of the people are dogs. Some of the people are pigs. <laughs> Those people, you probably don't want to trust the fancy stuff to, right? And I'm not saying that you should go around calling people dogs and pigs. He's using a metaphor here, right? Once again, it's humorous, right? Jesus is cracking jokes in this sermon because jokes are relatable to people, right? He's saying, why would you give something holy to a dog? You're wasting that holy thing because the dog's going to turn and he's going to tear you into pieces and he's not even going to appreciate the thing you gave him, right? On the other hand, why would you throw your pearls, these precious items that you have that are worth so much money, why would you throw them into a pig pen? Because those pigs are not going to appreciate those pearls in the same way that your wife would appreciate these pearls, right? So what he's saying is, Know your audience and use discernment wisely whenever you're going about these things, right? You can't just make a blank, blanket statement and say, I'm not allowed to judge people ever. Well, no, you can't say that because you need to make judgments, right? What he's advocating for here is not a lack of judgment, but he's advocating for wise discernment, right? Know your audience and respond appropriately to your audience. On one hand, what he's saying is that you don't want to come across overly harsh against your Christian brother. On the other hand, you don't want to entrust the keys of the kingdom to somebody who is hostile against the kingdom. That's probably what he has in mind specifically when he's talking about the dogs and the swine, right? These are both negative terms that are probably being employed to talk about people who are hostile to the kingdom of God, right? These are not kingdom citizens. These are dogs and swine who are simply showing up to wreak havoc. Okay, well, maybe don't give them the keys to the kingdom, right? He doesn't, he's not advocating that your judgment be so impaired and that you be so gracious that you don't use any discernment in the world. That's not what he's asking you to do. He's not demanding that his followers be naive. Rather, he's demanding that they be shrewd and that they be cunning and that they know how to manage themselves in the world, but that they err towards graciousness when at all possible. And ultimately, I think that um, really you see these two extremes that I'm talking about here in everyday life, and especially in our Christian churches. On one hand, um, all you have to do is look at our YouTube comments a lot of the times, uh, or just look on social media. Uh, you see so-called Christ followers who are overly harsh and ho overly critical on every single person they ever talk to, right? And I'm not saying that these people aren't well-meaning. I'm simply saying that what they are doing is that they are missing the point of what Jesus is saying in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, right? They are being overly harsh judges, right? And they are so zealous for righteousness 
that they actually are total jerks to people who are actually being more righteous than they are, right? Because these people have become Pharisees. They've engaged in performative righteousness and they are so harsh on every single person on the face of the planet. And you will see them, like we can call them heresy hunters, right? These are the people who go out of their way to nitpick every single word a person says in order to find some sort of heresy, right? Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of YouTube people like this, right? There's a lot of YouTube channels. I honestly, if I'm being entirely honest, I cannot stand them because the whole reason their YouTube channel is successful is because they go find other people to point out issues in their teachings. And don't get me wrong. I am a person who has very strong opinions about a lot of church leaders. And I think that there's a lot of church leaders who have no business being church leaders. And there's a lot of people who, I, if you were to have a private conversation with me, I would tell you, I do not think that person is equipped for ministry or qualified for ministry. I'd be the first to tell you that. At the same time, though, I realize that it's not our job as Christians to go out and be heresy hunters, right? If the subject comes up and if it needs to be addressed, I will address it, right? And if you ask me my opinion about somebody, I will give you my honest opinion. But a lot of Christians, they're on this one side of things where they're not, they're just ignoring chapter seven verses one through five, right? They're just being overly harsh judges. And there might be somebody who is genuinely a good God-fearing Christian leader who is genuinely preaching the word of God, and maybe they just mess up a little here and a little bit there, and this person will denounce them and say that they are just doing these wicked, horrible things. Do you want God to be that harsh against you on judgment day? Do you want him to be as ungracious towards you as you were towards that person? I don't think so, right? And so on one hand, you do have people who do that. On the other hand, though, I do think that we see so-called Christ followers who abandon judgment altogether, in order to try to appease anyone and everyone they meet, right? Um, this is what we would usually call the seeker-sensitive churches, right? And I would say that these people totally miss what Jesus is saying in verse 6, right? Because these people, they've abandoned discernment altogether, right? And usually it's in response to the Pharisees, right? Usually people are like a pendulum. They go from one extreme to another. And Jesus is calling for us to force ourselves to be the pendulum that stays in the center, right? You don't want to be a legalistic Pharisee over here, but you also don't want to be somebody who just abandons all discernment and just accepts anything and everything all for the sake of the love of God, right? There's those types of people that we see on both ends of the spectrum, right? And I think we see this in our Christian churches, right? We see the hyper-conservative Christians, which I would lean more towards that if I'm being entirely honest with you. You have the hyper-conservative Christians, but then you have the progressive Christians over here, and one of them are saying theology is all that matters, and then people over here are saying love is all that matters, but neither of them are actually making any sense whatsoever because theology can't be divorced from love and love can't be divorced from theology. The Bible says to preach the truth and to love well. Both need to exist together, and that's what Jesus is communicating here, right? So we need to love people, and therefore we can't judge hypocritically. At the same time, we need to be people of truth, and therefore we can't abandon discernment altogether. He's not calling for us to be naive. He is calling us to exercise discernment. But whenever we engage with people, we need to err on the side of graciousness because we want God to be gracious with us. And so, as we would have God do to us, so we should do to others. As we would have others do to us, so we should do to others. Ultimately, you should hopefully see where Jesus is leading with all of this. And so we've got these two extremes. We've got the overly harsh people, and then we have the overly gracious people who abandon all discernment. And both of these groups, I would argue, in some form or fashion, are doing these things because in some weird way, they still are living according to the fear of man. And this is what Jesus has been advocating against the entire Sermon on the Mount, 
right? The whole Sermon on the Mount is pointing us towards a redemptive righteousness that is rooted not in the fear of man, but trust in God, right? And I think both of these two extremes, the overly harsh people and the overly gracious people, both of them are doing these things because they still are rooted in the fear of man. The first group, the overly harsh people, they're still engaging in pharisaical righteousness, right? This is performative righteousness. And the reason why they're so harsh on everybody else is because they are trying so hard to prove how much more righteous they are than everyone else, right? That's why they take to social media and they start typing out all these long things, calling out anybody and everybody on their stuff because they feel the need to make it known how much more righteous they are than everybody else. When in reality, they could have simply looked at it and been like, you know what? I disagree with that. And maybe they could have talked to one another personally, like if it came up in a conversation, they didn't need to go on social media and put this long, typed out response. The reason they're doing that is because they're still performing, right? They're doing what the scribes and the Pharisees do, right? They're standing on the street corners proclaiming their own righteousness. And the way that they're doing it is not by actually being righteous. They're actually calling out other people on their wickedness. And in doing so, they're actually still being wicked, right? And so those people... They might say that they're doing it out of zeal for God, but they're still living according to the fear of man. They're still being Pharisees. On the other hand, you have the second group, and the reason they're, um, I mean, it's a lot easier to see how they're living according to the fear of man, because their whole thing is that they're trying to appease the world, right? They don't want to call out sin at all, right? They don't want to judge anybody, because their whole thing is that they're afraid of what people will think of them, right? They want to appease everybody and they're not really concerned with what is actually good and what is actually evil in the eyes of God. They simply want to appease man. And so really, I would argue that both ends of the spectrum are still living in the fear of man. And Jesus' whole thing is telling us to not do that, right? We don't want to engage in a righteousness that is rooted in the fear of man. And we don't want to engage in hypocritical righteousness. And we don't want to engage in righteousness that takes us down the path of the world. Instead, we want to engage in a redemptive form of righteousness that takes us down the path to the Lord. And that righteousness is rooted in trust in God, which leads us into verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? If you haven't noticed, Jesus in the first few verses of chapter seven, he's just cracking jokes left and right, right? The imagery he's using here is meant to put a smile on your face because of how ridiculous it is. And his whole point here is that even wicked, hypocritical humans who are always trying to appease man and do all these worldly things, even they know how to do good things for people who ask stuff of them. How much more will God do that, right? In the context of how, like how this directly flows to what he's saying is that all these people are engaging in this hypocritical forms of righteousness because they're too attached to the worldly kingdom, right? That's what they're attached to, right? They're trying to serve both God and mammon. They're trying to lay down treasures on this earth because there's something within them that is keeping them from giving it all to God, right? Ultimately, there's this deep down trust issue where they're not trusting that God will provide in the way that God has said he will provide. And so Jesus is telling them, guys, you need to get over this. You need to get rid of this hypocritical judgment. You need to get rid of this lack of discernment. You need to learn to stop serving mammon and stop serving the world 
and start serving God, right? You can't be a slave to both. You have to choose to be a slave to God. You have to lay up treasures in heaven. But ultimately, if you're going to lay up treasures in heaven, that means you can't lay up treasures on earth. And that means you're going to have to live by faith. In in order to live by faith, you have to trust that God will do what he said he's going to do. And so rather than asking for anything and everything from man, ask for anything and everything from God. Because man ultimately cannot fulfill you. Only God himself can fulfill you. And the cool thing is that if you ask him, he will do it. Usually our harsh judgment or lack of discernment testifies to a deeper issue within us a way where we are trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in God. In these verses, Jesus is telling us, stop doing that, right? Stop trusting in man. Stop relying on man for your satisfaction and contentment in life. Stop trusting in man for your daily bread. Stop trusting in man for your reputation. Trust in God, right? Let God be the one who decides what you get in life. Let God be the one who gives you your daily bread. Let God be the one who decides what reputation you have. Let God be the one who decides what job you have. Stop insisting on eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not the person who gets to decide what is right and wrong. God is, and what Jesus is advocating for here is that we willfully submit to him and allow him to provide for us in the way that he has promised he will provide. But what if I don't agree with what God says? Get over it. That's what Jesus is saying, right? He's saying, you're right. Your life might look different than how you expected it to look. You might not have as much bread as you thought that you needed. Your reputation might not be what you wanted it to be, but that's okay because God is the true person who owns the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore you can trust him. And rather than relying on man and trying to live in order to appease man, and rather than giving what is holy to dogs, and rather than just judging everybody, what you need to do instead is you need to humble yourself. You have to deny yourself. And you have to willfully choose to trust in God. Rather than asking for man to provide for everything for you, and rather than relying on the world to provide everything for you, ask God and it will be given to you. Seek God and you will find him. Knock on the door into the throne room of God and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks to him, the door will be open. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? God is not going to deny you, right? This is not a verse about saying, okay, if I just pray this prayer and ask for a million dollars, God's going to give it to me. That's not what he's saying, right? You have to understand the context. He's saying, if you ask God to give you your daily bread, he will give you your daily bread because he's promised he'll do that. If you ask God to deliver you from temptation and you rely on him to do it, he will deliver you from temptation because he's promised to do that, right? In all the things that God has promised to do, he will do those things because he is faithful. And in order to prove this, he cites the examples of sinful men. What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not, he won't give him a snake, snake will he? <laughs> he's like, no, that's ridiculous, right? What father would do that to his son if he loves his son, Right? Even us sinful human beings who are so hypocritical and wicked, we know how to take care of people who we genuinely care for. How much more will God do that? Because we're faithless people who are hypocrites and who are primarily self-serving. God, he is self-sufficient. He is omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing. Like he, he, he can provide in so many ways. 
and he cares for us and he loves us and he's gracious towards us. If us sinful people know how to provide for people, how much more will the creator of the universe who has made these promises and who will always fulfill his promises, how much more can we trust him? If a son can trust the father, how much more can we, the children of God, trust in the father to provide for us? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? His whole point in all of this is that we need to learn to trust in God rather than man. You need to stop seeking things from the world. You need to stop seeking things from man. If you need something, if you need anything, go to God for it, and he will ultimately provide. Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. That's what we need to learn. And therefore, he concludes this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount by saying these words. Therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Way back in chapter 5, verse 17, he brought up the law and the prophets. And this entire section, all the way to right here, has been addressing that singular issue. How Jesus interprets the law and the prophets. At the very beginning, he said he came to fulfill it. And now right here, in one single verse, he says that he has single-handedly summarized the entire law and prophets together. The entire Old Testament, he says, is summarized in this one commandment. What you want people to do for you, so do for them. I'm going to quote Peter Lightheart again, because I like what he has to say here. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but bear with me. This phrase is so similar to us that we don't see just how radical Jesus is being here. He has been talking throughout the sermon about the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's been talking about the justice of the kingdom throughout the entire chapter, and he's still talking about justice here. But this doesn't look like justice. Justice, we think, means giving people what they deserve, paying what people are owed. Justice is about giving in return what people have done. But this is not the justice of Jesus. That justice, that justice doesn't restore the world. That kind of justice might bring the world back to where it started, but it doesn't move the world to something new. Jesus' justice is a restorative justice, a redemptive justice that advances the kingdom and brings humanity and the world closer to the consummation. That is what Jesus is advocating here in the Sermon on the Mount. He is not advocating for a justice and righteousness that is comparable to that in the world, right? Because whenever we think of justice in legal terms, we typically think eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which is the legal demand. But Jesus is saying that if you read the law and the prophets closely, that was never the goal, right? Yes, the law demanded eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? Give somebody what they deserve, right? That would be the standard. That would be the limit. But ultimately, if you read the law and the prophets closely, you'll realize that God is a God who is gracious and he rarely gives people what they deserve because he's not simply trying to bring the world back to normal. He's trying to redeem the world and he's trying to restore the world and he's trying to deliver it into something new. That is what Jesus is demanding of his followers. It's not enough to simply define righteousness and justice how the world does, right? It's not, a simp it's not enough for us to simply be outwardly righteous who are performing righteous acts in front of people. It's not enough for us to simply earn the praise of men because of how righteous we are. It's not enough for us to simply think righteous thoughts. Instead, we have to genuinely be righteous in the eyes of God and engage in redemptive righteousness. 
And it's not enough to simply call things just because somebody has received what they've deserved. Jesus' justice is something totally different. Justice, in Jesus' eyes, is taking what somebody deserves upon yourself in order to give them something better in return. Right? You are doing for them what you would have them do to you. Do you want somebody to just bring up all of your failures to you and just spit them in your face? Probably not. So don't do that to other people. Right? If you want somebody to be gracious towards you, be gracious towards them as well. If you want them to be kind to you and to be willing to forgive you whenever you sin against them, be kind towards them and be willing to forgive them whenever they sin against you. Right? It's a very simple thing, but it's the hard, like it's a simple thing to say, but it's a hard thing to put into practice. Yet, this is what Jesus demands of his followers. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't advise it. He demands it. Right? Because right here, he says, this is the law and the prophets. He says the entire Old Testament scriptures, which I have come to fulfill, are summarized in this command. What you want other people to do for you, do for them. This is the golden rule. This is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the law and prophets summarized. And according to Jesus, way back in chapter 5, unless you have this form of righteousness you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a harsh teaching, but it's what Jesus says. And it's pretty radical. Take that, reflect on it. And that's all I've got for y'all today. Um, I know it was a lot, and I hope that you are as passionate about it now as I am. Uh, but it's some really good stuff. Jesus, he's cool. <laughs> he's a cool guy. Uh, he's an amazing God. Uh, and I pray that, if anything, this whole lesson just led you into further worship of him. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on this whole journey. I'm excited to be talking about the Gospel of Matthew with y'all. Uh, we're going way more in depth than I originally anticipated, but you know what? I'm enjoying it, and I hope you are too. Until next time, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. And I will see y'all next time. God bless, and Maranatha. You read a verse, you sing a hymn, the money's in the plate. Sundays you mark out for him, but even then you show up late. Bought the shirt, you wear the cross, but sin throughout the week. Thirty shekels and a noose, you kiss him on the cheek.